Lord, as we look at the scriptures this morning, I pray that in Solomon we would see Solomon's greater son, your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to, as Joe prayed earlier, help us to meet with you this morning, to hear from you. Pray that your spirit is stirring our hearts to enjoy you more fully, to see you more clearly. Lord, help us to love you more because of the time we spend with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, we'll be in 1 Kings again this morning. Last week, we talked about the fact that there was this young king occupying the throne, David, of David, his father in Israel. Remember, he'd asked God for something when God gave him kind of a blank check and said, what would you like? And he didn't ask anything for himself, but he asked for wisdom so that he could honor God by wisely leading God's people. And God was pleased with that. And he said, Solomon, you've got it. I'm giving you wisdom and not just a little, but a lot. And then we saw that on display last week in the end of chapter 3 when we saw the well-known story about the two prostitutes who bring a child, a living son. And Solomon, through wise discernment, shows which of those two gals is the real mother. And Israel understands we've got a king who has God's wisdom. This was a good thing. This morning in chapter 4, Solomon's wisdom and his administration of the kingdom is going to be expanded. We're going to see it instead of on a very small scale with that story we saw in chapter 3. We'll see it expanded to the national level in chapter 4 this morning. Starting at verse 1, and I'm going to talk about this in sections. We'll actually go through the whole chapter and we'll talk about it as we go. Starting at verse 1, Solomon displays his wisdom as he sets up his cabinet. That is his inner circle or his key administrators and advisors. Now, Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Eli Horeph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army. Zadok and Abiathar, priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the deputies. Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, the king's friend, and we assume advisor, counselor. And Ahishar was over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the men subject to forced labor. Besides being a list of difficult names to pronounce here, what we're looking at is Solomon's inner ring, his inner circle. These would be like, in today's culture, political climate, these would be like his cabinet members. This is his inner circle. It's the guys that have the closest contact with him and are the most important of his advisors or administrators. One of the things I want to point out, besides that their names are difficult to pronounce, is I want to look at a couple of these guys in particular. Benaiah, leader of the army, and Zadok and Abiathar, priests. The reason I bring these guys up is because these names aren't new in this text. That is, if you've read through First and Second Samuel, you've seen Benaiah's name before, for instance, because he was one of David's key military leaders. And in fact, when First Kings opens, Benaiah is the one who, in a judicial executionary sense, establishes Solomon's throne. That is, Benaiah is the one who's given the responsibility to uh, execute. Uh, people who stood in Solomon's way of the throne. Benaiah was a key military leader under David. And when Solomon takes up the throne, he knows he needs a good guy to lead the military. 
By the way, if you study history, you know that uh, power is centered in at least three areas in uh, any climate, any sphere. It's political, it's religious, and it's military. Religious, political, and military. And so over the military, Solomon knows he needs someone who's both loyal and capable. So when he sets up his administration, he doesn't look far, he chooses Benaiah. Benaiah is a tried and true, a trusted man from his father's administration. He's not a question mark. He's not new to the ranks. When Solomon needs his commander over the army, he chooses Benaiah from his father's administration. Also look at these names, Zadok and Abiathar, priests. These are interesting stories all in themselves, which we won't go into this morning. But Zadok and Abiathar were also priests under David. And if you go back to the story in Samuel where Absalom tries to wrest the throne from David, Zadok and Abiathar were faithful friends and counselors who helped David negotiate through that most difficult period in his rule. So the same thing, Solomon setting up his inner circle, his counselors and his key administrators related to the religious oversight of the country, he chooses known men, men who had proven faithful to his father David, tried and true, no doubt older, related to age at this point, but he chooses these tried and true guys from his father's administration. Now, this is wise and it is prudent. This is, I assume that God wants us, and the chronicler here from 1 Kings wants us to see this is a display of Solomon's wisdom, who he chose to lead. He didn't reinvent the wheel. When there were people from his father's administration that he could use and that he trusted that were still available, that's who he used. This was wisdom. One of the things I admired about uh, President George Bush was when he came into office the first time, I don't know if you remember this, do you remember some of his key administrators? They were from his father's administration. Uh, Dick Cheney, um, the, uh, Don Rumsfeld, and others who came in early on, especially some have not necessarily stayed. But when George Jr. or the third or the fourth, is it number 43? Number 43, he did the same thing Solomon did. That is, where he was able, he used the same administrators, the same wise counselors that he had seen and known from his father's administration. Those were the folks he recruited into his administration. This is very prudent. It's very wise. It's very shrewd. And by the way, as a counterpoint to this point, if you go a little further in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12 to the end of Solomon's reign, you'll see the counterpoint to this. When King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes the throne, he's faced with a conundrum, a decision to make, just like his father was, sort of. The people come to him and they say, gosh, your dad made it a little hard for us. Uh, would you lighten the load a little bit? King Rehoboam, young king, fresh on the throne, he goes to Solomon's advisors, right? Tried, true, wise guys. They've lived through the golden age of Israel. And they say, hey, listen to these guys. If you do what they ask now, they'll be your servants forever. And Rehoboam says, well, let me noodle on that. And what does he do? He goes to the younger, his peers, untried, untested advisors. And they say, oh, no, no. You tell those guys, Solomon was lightweight compared to what you'll be. So he takes the advice of the younger, unwise, untried advisors. And what happens? He loses the northern kingdom to Jeroboam. Now, God had said he was going to take the, th the kingdom, northern tribes, away. But the manner in which it occurred was through Rehoboam's use of untried, 
untested counselors whose wisdom was not wise at all. But here's Solomon. He sets up his inner ring. These are the guys he's going to closely associate with. They're going to help him run the country. And where he can, he brings in people that were part of his father's administration because he knew they were capable men. This was the wise foundation of his kingdom. Look at the second thing he does, starting at verse 7. Solomon changes the political and geographic landscape of Israel in the manner by which he makes provision for his own household and for the whole royal court. Uh, Some of this is a little overwhelming, and we'll go through another list of hard-to-pronounce names and geographical landmarks none of us probably will remember. Uh, But there's some great points to be made here. He's got to tax, and we can see this as a tax. He's got to tax the land in a way that his household and, and the larger administration is provided for. And so this is how he does it, starting at verse 7. Solomon had 12 deputies, and if you went back, you'll see in verse 5, Azariah the son of Nathan was over the deputies. So you see this tier of administrative levels. And under Azariah, the guy that Solomon has interaction with routinely, were 12 deputies over all Israel. They provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month in the year. These are their names, Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim. By the way, if you have a King James Bible, it won't say Ben-Hur. I think it says son of. You know, in Hebrew, Ben means son of, just like Mac in Scottish is son of, and Owen, Irish, etc., Ireland. So Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim. Ben-Decker in Machaz and Sheol-Bim and Beth-Shemesh and Elon-Beth-Hanan. Ben-Hesed in Ereboth. Soko was his and all the land of Hefer. Ben-Abinadab who had the height of Dor. Tafath, the daughter of Solomon, was his wife. By the way, you'll see a couple of these guys are related to Solomon by marriage to his daughters. Uh, sometimes this is imprudent. Uh, I assume in Solomon's case it was prudent. Baanah, the son of Ahilud, in Teanach and Megiddo, and all Beth Shean, which is beside Zarethan, below Jezreel, from Beth Shean to Abel Maholalah, as far as the other side of Jachmium. Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, were his. The region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars, were his. Ahinadab, the son of Ido, in Mahanaim. Aamaz in Naphtali, he also married Basemath, the daughter of Solomon. Baanah, the son of Hushai, in Asher, and Baaloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sion, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only deputy who was in the land. Solomon displays great wisdom in this whole deal about how do I provide for the court, for my household, for the administration that oversees all this land. It's got to be done. How do I do it? You remember on one hand, Israel is a tribal nation. They're a nation of tribes, and the land is already divided by tribes. But he doesn't use the tribes and their boundaries as his means of administration. And think of this. We'll read later here how much each of these areas had to provide every day for Solomon's court. But if you had a little tribe like Dan or Naphtali up in the north, and they had to provide as much as Manasseh, who occupied this huge area on the east side of Jordan, what do you think the guys in Dan would feel? It might be really overwhelming because they had so few resources compared to one of the large tribes. So 
Solomon first starts, he makes it equitable. He doesn't do this by tribes, bigger versus smaller. He divides it up geographically. And also, I assume, not just geographically, but in those divisions, it, it was appropriate related to divisions that would provide enough grain versus cattle. In other words, these areas would be able to provide everything that was needed. It wouldn't be a strain on any of them. The other thing, so it's fair. No one tribe is having a disproportionate tax imposed, but the areas are divided geographically. The other wise part about this is, if you remember under David, as long as the divisions are tribal, just like siblings sometimes today, there was animus at times between the tribes. So, for instance, if you read in David's stories when he's brought back after Absalom's rebellion, one tribe complains against another because they weren't part of bringing him back. Well, another thing that this does by dividing it geographically, not tribally, Solomon mitigates or he minimizes the opportunity for tribal factionalism. Because let's say it might be that one of these deputies might be over part of Issachar and part of Dan. In other words, he's going to oversee parts of various tribes. And so one tribe won't just be able to argue against another. They'd have an administrator that was overseeing parts of both or more. So this was very shrewd because it was equitable and fair. It wouldn't be overwhelming for one tribe versus another. And it also tended to minimize tribal uh, squabbles. This was very wise as well. Also, the other side of this is it was simple. He had on his staff one man, was it Ahaziah, who oversaw 12 deputies. So if there wasn't enough butter on the table that night, he'd go to Ahaziah. And Ahaziah would go to Ben-Hur and say, hey, what gives? This was simple or, or whatever. You'll see the list comes up. It's a big list. But anyway, so as he divides the land up, very shrewd, fair and equitable, avoiding squabbles and keeping it simple. At verse 20, we start to see a display, not just the wise disposition of Solomon in his leadership and administration, but we start seeing these descriptives of what life looked like in Israel under Solomon's rule. It's abundance. It's a picture of abundance geographically, population, material wealth. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, that is the Mediterranean coast, to the border of Egypt in the south. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. There's a lot I'd like to say here, and I may forget some of my points, but under Solomon, Israel occupies its greatest geographical coverage. They occupy more land under Solomon than they ever will again, more than under David and more than under anyone who follows. This is as big as Israel ever gets. And by the way, compared to today's uh, nation of Israel, uh, it's a fraction of what uh, Israel was under Solomon. So it's quite large. And when this says they brought tribute, it doesn't mean that, that Jews occupied this whole area. It only means that Solomon reigned over it. Many of you, I'm sure, have study Bibles. You can look at maps in the back. And typically, they'll color code the portion of the nation that the Jews inhabited, the tribal areas, and then they'll color code the rest to show it wasn't that Jews lived here, but it's that these areas were subject to Solomon's rule and they paid tribute. 
And you remember in the days in which Solomon ruled, there were kings and there were high kings. There were vassal kings and there were the great kings. So there would have been kings ruling under Solomon in these other kingdoms as his sub-kings. And they paid tribute to Israel, to Solomon. So they occupy the greatest amount of geography they'll ever see. And within that geography, they have other nations paying them money, tribute to Solomon, the great or the high king. If you were a Jew reading this description, there's some verses that I'm sure would come to mind immediately, and I believe we're, we're intended to see this in light of past promises made in Genesis to Solomon's forebear, Abraham. Uh, two things here. We've got population and we've got geography. So related to population, listen to what God told Abraham in Genesis 13. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Genesis 22. I will greatly multiply your seed, that is your grandchildren, children, posterity, as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore. And do you remember the phrase that was used here? The people in Israel under Solomon's rule are as numerous as the sand on the sea. This is a phrase that the Jews knew from Genesis and from Exodus. In other words, it's as if God's saying, under Solomon, the promise of blessing to Abraham looks like it's come full bloom. They're occupying all this land, and the, the people in the land, they're as numerous as the sand of the sea. If we hear of population explosions today, we have been raised in a culture which is afraid of too many people. This was not the case. Uh, a, a burgeoning population was desirable. This meant wealth. It meant posterity. It was a positive in every aspect of the word. So this describes the nation as good as it gets. Related to the land too, Genesis 15 said to Abraham, to your descendants I have given this land. How much? Well, from the river of Egypt down in the south, as far as the great river, the Euphrates River up in the northeast. In Exodus 23, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea down in Egypt to the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean, from the wilderness, that's down in the south, to the river Euphrates. In other words, when we read this description in 1 Kings 4, the writer is telling us under Solomon, it was as if the promises made to Abraham had come full bloom. People in the land as numerous as the sand on the sea. The spread geographically, it was the spread that God had promised to Abraham from up in the Euphrates down to Egypt, Mediterranean, down to the very southeast uh, coast of the Gulf. This, it's as if the promises to Abraham under Solomon have come full bloom. It's at least for Israel, as they look back, it's this taste. And I think for us, we mentioned this last week, when we read this and we read about Solomon and this golden age of Israel's history, we should see more than just Solomon because we're supposed to see, I believe, in Solomon a, a type or a picture of God's greater Messiah. And when God had promised David, he said, I'll give you a son who will sit on your throne. Short term, that looks like Solomon. But Solomon can't be the fulfillment long term because the kingdom of the king from David that God promised would have a kingdom that would never end. And Solomon's ended. It's 40 years. It's bright. It's a blast. It's the 
high point of Israel's history, but it's short, and then it's over. So when, if you were a Jew reading this passage or thinking about this, this is a taste of the messianic reign yet to come on the earth. And if you're a Christian today, it's a reminder that God keeps his promises. There's a thousand years between Abraham and Solomon. God kept his promise anyway. And it's a reminder that God's promises to Israel in the future will be fulfilled. And that also God's promises to Christians specifically with a future home in heaven. You remember Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Won't have geographic boundaries like we've got here. You know, Palestine will be small potatoes compared to the kingdom we inherit with Christ. But when you see this in the grandeur and the golden age quality of Solomon's reign, it's a reminder God keeps his promises, but also that Solomon's better is yet to come, and that's actually what we look forward to. At verse 22, the description of his abundance continues, but also it adds this extra measure about the peace and stability under Solomon's reign. In verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day, imagine if you have to go to the grocery store for this list. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. Their rough equivalent, this is about 400 bushels of flour per day. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. He had dominion over everything west of the river, the Euphrates, from Tibsha even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan, Dan's actually up in the north of Israel, to Beersheba, down in the south, all the days of Solomon." You got this great grocery list. The people at his table ate well, but uh, Alfred Edersheim, who's a Jewish Christian scholar from the late 1800s, has great books if you ever get a chance to read. Uh, History of the Old Testament, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, uh, The Temple Life or something in Jesus' Age. Anyway, a great writer, great godly guy. He says in comparison to the king of Persia, this wasn't that big. We've got tablets. We've got data from other kingdoms in the Middle East. And he says, this sounds like a lot, but actually in scale, this is probably just right. And compared to a larger kingdom that you'd see later in Persia or Babylon, this actually wouldn't appear to be that big. It's overwhelming to my mind, but this was just about right for Solomon's kingdom. So they've got this daily provision, which the 12 deputies are bringing them. And then notice in verse 24, it says, he had peace on all sides around about him. And then in verse 25, every man under his vine and his fig tree. This is supposed to paint a picture for us. There's peace from outside, and there's peace inside. There's freedom from warfare on our borders, and there's freedom from crime or theft from my neighbors. In other words, this is a time, it's not just for Solomon a good time. This is a great time of blessing and plenty for anyone who lived in Israel. Their borders, their exterior borders are secure. They have peace from without. No one's attacking them. They occupy all this land and they're safe. No one's marching into Jerusalem. Again, under Rehoboam, you know, the first thing that happens, Egypt comes up and sacks Jerusalem, just like the old days. Remember under David, David's fighting all his life. All his life he's fighting one king or neighbor or another. Under Solomon, there's peace. The borders are secure and they're safe from the threat of invasion. And then beyond that, they're safe even within their own 
territory. This phrase, every man under his vine and his fig tree, this is, what would we say? I don't know of a modern equivalent. This is a phrase that is supposed to conjure up, this is the good life. In fact, in Micah 4, when Micah talks about the coming messianic age, he says this of those in Israel. He says, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. That's the thought in the messianic age we see in some small part, at least, fulfilled under Solomon. And the picture is that my borders are secure, so no one's invading me, and that everyone has their own farm, if you will, and their own house, and no one's coming and taking their produce away. But each man has peace with his neighbors as well as with the larger nations surrounding them. There's plenty and there's prosperity, all in a setting of safety. There's peace without and there's peace within. By the way, you know Solomon's name means peace. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we talk about one of his titles is the Prince of Peace. Well, Solomon is the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Peace. This is another way in which we see Solomon tied with Jesus, his greater son yet to come. So peace without, peace within, plenty for all. Verse 26, it describes a little bit of Solomon's wealth as well as his military capability. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. There's some debate about the 40,000 that it might be 4,000. Those deputies provided for King Solomon and all who came to Solomon's table each in his month. They left nothing lacking. And this included, verse 28, they brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. This thing with the horses and the chariots is important in this sense at least, two senses. Militarily, in this age, chariots were the, the way to go. If you had an army without chariots, you were quite vulnerable. So typically, a chariot had at least two horses. It had a chariot driver, and it had an archer. If you went out to war, typically the army with the greater number of chariots had a distinct tactical benefit over their opponent. So when this says that Solomon had all these chariots and all these horses, this says that militarily he's good to go. People understand if they were to mess with Israel, Israel has, is very competent militarily. The other thing related to horses and chariots is these were distinct signs of wealth. These were distinct signs of wealth. And this says that Solomon and his entourage lacked nothing. This would be like driving their Cadillacs or Mercedes or whatever cars are advertised in the Wall Street Journal today. This is as good as it gets, and maybe his were gilded wheels, but Solomon had a military that was capable, and he had the signs of wealth in these chariots and horses. Uh, just a side note on that, too, uh, archaeological digs, I believe it's in the area of Megiddo, they think that they, in uncovering some, some structures, uh, there, there's two views on these structures. One is that these are storehouses from Solomon's reign, and the other is that these are Solomon's stables. And this goes back and forth depending on the archaeologists that are looking at this, but the shape and the size is such that they believe, that one, one camp at least believes, that these were part of Solomon's stalls for these horses. So, it's just a neat thing uh, from today, tying back all the way to Solomon's day. So we've looked at uh, Solomon's administration, key men, key administration, wisely dividing up the land, avoiding strife and conflict, evenly dividing the tax burden. 
we see that everybody's good to go within the nation. And then here towards the end of this chapter, it talks about Solomon personally. We've, we're told he's wise. This is going to expand upon that, verses 29 through 34. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Uh, even today, I don't know if this makes sense to you guys, in that day, Egypt and the east, these were the centers of historical power, prestige, and academic learning. Remember the Egyptians, they built the pyramids. They were pretty smart. And the guys in the east, these are the astronomers and the mathematicians historically. So when they compare this and say Solomon was wiser than the men of the east or than Egypt, they're saying he's as good as it gets. Solomon is the wisest of all. Closer to home, he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezraite, Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. In their time, these would have been understood to have been brilliant men closer to home in Israel. His fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. And when it says he spoke proverbs, if you read the book of Proverbs, you know that he spoke Proverbs and he collected Proverbs, but he spoke 3,000 of these pithy, wise sayings. We might think of someone like Ben Franklin in United States history, someone who coined phrases that we say, boy, that's wise, it's pithy, it's memorable, it's helpful in living life well. Well, Solomon spoke, that is, he originated 3,000, he also read, and so in his collection in the book of Proverbs, we have uh, Proverbs he spoke, and then we also have Proverbs that he collected. So he spoke wisely, and he read widely. Also, his songs were 1,005. Now, most of these we do not have, but we have one, the Song of Songs. It's considered the high point of Solomon's songwriting, the Song of Songs. Verse 33 he spoke of, that is, he was able to talk lucidly, intelligently about trees, that is, biology. From the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall, he knew his trees, he knew his plants. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish, that's zoology. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You get this picture. People are coming to Israel to be blessed by the wisdom of Solomon. By the way, later it says under Messiah's rule in Isaiah and Micah, one of the things that describes Messiah's rule is the nations will send their ambassadors to Israel so that they'll be blessed. And we see exactly that happening here. These nations and their leaders go to Israel so that they can get some of this good stuff that Israel has in their king. And that's what it's another connection to the future, the messianic reign of Jesus Christ, that the nations would be described as streaming to Jerusalem because they knew that's where the blessing was. You know, if you talk about Renaissance men, if you think of a Leonardo da Vinci or um, a Thomas Jefferson, guys like this, brilliant men who had this incredible breadth and depth of knowledge and understanding, Solomon puts these guys to shame. He's a poet, he's a scholar, he's a scientist, he's a politician. He brings a, a breadth and depth to all of these fields that was unheard of and unknown historically. He was a true Renaissance man. This description that we're given through chapter 4, it's supposed to tell us that, guys, this is the golden age of Israel. This is as good as it gets. And in Solomon, 
Israel saw, and we look back and see today, at least this partial sense of fulfillment where God took the promises he made to Abraham and he wrote them out and he brought fulfillment to them. Not entirely, again, because Solomon's reign historically or in time, a larger sense of time, it's brief. It's only 40 years. But boy, for 40 years, Israel was like Camelot, if you will. It was this golden age. It was this privileged period and place and time to live on the earth. It should remind us, um, I don't think this is one of my soapboxes, but if you read uh, at all or if you listen to Christian radio, you know that there are differences of opinion theologically on whether or not Israel as a nation has a future. Uh, covenant theology says Israel does not. Dispensational theology says Israel does. I make no apologies in saying I'm a dispensationalist. That is, that promises made to the nation of Israel will be physically, materially, geographically, ethnically fulfilled in Israel to Jews, to descendants of Abraham. And when you see God, in at least a small sense, under Solomon fulfilling those promises that 1 Kings 4 makes sure we tie back to the promises made to Abraham, it's a reminder to us for the future, God's not done with Israel. And if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says, all Israel will be saved. You and I live in the period of the times of the Gentiles. God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, race, and kindred. This period will come to an end. The times of the Gentiles will come to an end, and God will pick up that olive branch, Israel, that's been cast aside temporarily, and he's going to graft them back in. And the promises God makes in Isaiah and Zechariah, there's all these promises that some will tell you are now symbolically fulfilled in the church. Frankly, I think it's rubbish. God will keep his literal promises to literal descendants of Israel and all the earth will be blessed again. And in Solomon, we see a reminder of that. Can you imagine if you were a Jew? Let's say in 1500 in Egypt, and you knew those promises made to Abraham, and you said, Lord, what gives? Aren't you going to keep your promise? God might say something like, I will, and you're going to have to wait a little while. It didn't mean he wouldn't keep the promise. Second Peter brings this up later. Peter says, men will say, where's the promise of his coming? Men say today, there's no future for Israel. I beg to differ. I believe there is, and I believe a passage like 1 Kings 4 is meant to re remind us God will keep the promises he made. And God will keep the promises to Israel and Messiah will sit on the throne in Jerusalem with a new temple and with Israel restored in the land. Every man under his fig tree and under his vine. You know, for us, though, as Christians, I believe we'll be there in the sense that we'll reign with the Messiah who is Jesus Christ. But, you know, the Bible also says that, that golden age yet to come for Israel, that thousand year reign of Christ on earth, a thousand years in light of eternity, it's, it's a blink. It's here, and it's gone. And if you and I set our sights on anything less than heaven, then the golden age that never ends, our sights are just too small. Passages like this should remind us that when we get to heaven, the, the breadth, the, the prosperity, I don't think we've got uh, uh, pockets, understanding, whatever, to fathom what God has prepared for us, what we're heading to so that the description of a golden age under Solomon, it just kind of tells us it's going to be good, but you, you just don't know how good. Heaven and eternity will be under King 
Jesus, the Prince of Peace. No threats, prosperity, abundance. I mean, we can talk about it in those terms, but we can't imagine what it'll look like. But it'll be this times Google or whatever. It'll be good. So when you read about Solomon, remember, we've got it better. It's yet to come. Israel will have their time and we'll have our time. And on Father's Day, let me say as a father, two fathers to both encourage and exhort, I, I think Solomon is a great reminder to dads. It's a great call to godly leadership. And just think right back to chapter 3. When Solomon has the blank check, he knows he's king. He's got the blank check. And God says, what do you want? Now, he could have asked for anything. But he says, Lord, you make me a blessing to the people I'm responsible to lead, to your people. That's how his reign starts. And I think as fathers, as husbands and dads, that, it doesn't get any better an example than that. That when I think about my position and my calling in life as a leader, I'm a king over a little kingdom, sort of. And Solomon's first thought wasn't for himself. It was for the people he was responsible to lead. That sounds like Jesus a little bit. I didn't come to be served. No, I came to serve. And dads and husbands, you know, biblically, we are called to serve, that is to lay down our lives, just like Solomon did, no request for himself, lay down our lives for the benefit of those we're called to serve. It starts that way. His reign starts as a servant. And because he takes the lowest place, what does God do? Raises him to the highest glory in Israel's history. And dads, for you and I, if we start with this premise that as God's king over our little kingdom, as God's servant leader in our own household, that's where we begin. Like Solomon, we say, Lord, you make me a blessing to the people I'm called to serve through leadership. That's the best place to start. And then put some practice to this. Look at what he did. He gathered wise administrators, didn't he? He made sure that if <clears throat> he needed help, he knew the right people to tap. And as dads or fathers, you know one of the best things you can do is you can tap on the shoulder of experienced advisors. So if you're a new father, you tap on the shoulder of an older father, a Christian father for advice and counsel. That's exactly what Solomon did. Get whiz, it's available. Get it from people who've been there. Or think of this too. Solomon looked out, that whole division of the land in part is just to provide for his household. Now, his household was a little difficult to provide for. 700 wives, 300 concubines times how many kids, etc. Uh, this was a big deal. But the point at least that we can take from this is, look, he was intentional, he was organized. He looked down the road. He knew I need to make provision. It's substantial. I need to have a framework from which to do that. Guys, this is like plotting your career. It's like asking yourself, Lord, how do you want me to provide for my family? That's, that's nuts and bolts. That's where we live. I mean, that's where we work, isn't it? But as husbands and dads, we've got to make provision for our family's needs. That's what Solomon did. He had a plan, and he executed the plan. He had a means of doing that, and husbands and fathers should as well. He also provided for the safety of his family from without, Solomon did, and from within. You know, dads, we're supposed to do that too. This might be practical like, where do you live? 
Is it a safe place to live? Uh, sometimes God may call us personally or with our families to live someplace that might be less safe than others. I had a friend who lived in St. Louis. And his view of East St. Louis at, this time, at that time was this. He said, I don't go to East St. Louis unless God tells me to. In other words, it's an unsafe place. I don't go there. I don't send my kids there unless I know God wants me to. We need to provide for the safety of our family from without. We need to provide for the safety of our family members from each other. You know, for your kids to sit under their own vine and fig tree means they need to be safe from each other. This means the way we require them to interact with each other. The standards we require them of respect and appreciation and service to each other. This goes right on down the line. You can take everything Solomon did and you can apply it at the level of your family. And could and should. You know, too, if you think of it this, uh, I am overwhelmed sometimes providing for my family, and our family's not that big, you know. I'm overwhelmed. But, you know, the truth is, you and I have the same resource, not tax-based and not geographically Solomon had. We have the same resource, though. We have Solomon's God. And so when we're feeling pressed or whatever... For us to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I'm your leader in this sphere. I understand I'm responsible and I'm looking to you for the resources. I'm asking you for the wisdom. I'm asking you for the job or the income or the safety or whatever it is. It is easy to be overwhelmed. In fact, probably if we're rational and we see the demand sometimes, if we weren't overwhelmed, we probably would be tuned out. Lord, here's the demand. Here's me and my ability and here's the difference in between but we've got the same resource in Solomon's God that Solomon did. I would like to think for any, any dad here, any husband and father here, uh, that to close, with this picture of Israel, uh, they're occupying the land God wants them to, and Solomon's there wisely leading. And the effect is that people are drawn to Israel. They... Solomon's not beating the bushes to get people to come and listen to him. People are coming. Why? Because they've heard about his wisdom. Of course, we'll see this in chapter 10, won't we? That The Queen of Sheba, specifically. And let me put this at your family level. Would people look at your family, your administration, and would they see kind of a golden age of family life, so to speak? Would they be drawn to your home because of what they see and hear and know about your family? Is your administration, your leadership, and your service producing in your family a place that draws people in because they see life and blessing, prosperity and peace? If it's not, ask God to help your family be like that that your family is desirable to others because like Solomon, you're exercising wisdom and godly oversight. People are drawn in because of the life that is there. So Solomon, the golden age, fulfillment in a small way at least of promises made in the past, a reminder of a larger fulfillment yet in the future through the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I know that the best is yet to come. Lord, for dads in our midst, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear the things you want us to know and to do. 
Lord, give us patience when we need patience. Give us tenacity when we need tenacity. Give us a hope and a vision for our wives and for our children and for those around us. And Lord, I really do pray that just as Israel in Egypt had lights in their homes when all around was dark, and just as Solomon in Israel were this golden nation that drew others in, I pray that the life we have in our homes, in our church, is of such a quality that it draws other people in because you're there, because your life, your wisdom, your peace is to be found there. God, help us to see you more fully. Lord Jesus, help us to know you more deeply. Might your life be reproduced in us even as it was in Solomon. In Jesus' name, amen.